0: Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reid. In this edition, we're going to be focusing on data mobility and how to ensure your company is getting the value from data that it expects. In a moment, I'll be talking to Liz Brand, CEO of Control Shift, about its report into the data mobility infrastructure sandbox it created and what it learned about supporting the movement of data between
1: companies. So watching 22 people log into five different systems with passwords. Was possibly one of the most toe-curling experiences I've had for quite some time.
0: <laughs> then I'll be talking to Keith Dugmore, founder of the Demographic Users Group, which campaigned to open up public sector data to commercial organisations. We were able to
2: argue the case that if uh, supermarkets can locate efficiently and provide customers with what they want locally, this is a thing like a public good, just like the health service is a public good.
0: And finally, you can hear a panel session from this year's Data IQ Summit. Which looked at how organizations should prepare for AI and automation. But first, in June, Control Shift reported on its multi-partner experiment looking into what is required to enable data mobility. So I'm here in Somerset House in the offices of Control Shift with its CEO Liz Brandt, talking about the report Data Mobility Infrastructure Sandbox that Control Shift published in June. And Liz is going to help us to understand the concepts and how that was arrived at. So, Liz, can
1: you explain? Yes, thanks very much, David. It's great to see you again. The Sandbox came about from uh, some work that we did with the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport last year. We published that in November with the the, uh, DCMS, uh, where we looked at the growth opportunity from data portability, that amazing right that's in GDPR for the individual. And in that work, we identified that there was, in fact, a, a, a large economic growth opportunity from data portability, but in, in in accessing it, you had to face into some specific challenges. So the, the opportunity, which was identified by the economists who worked with us, is estimated to be 27.8 billion for the UK economy for productivity and efficiency alone. Where they couldn't go as a size of opportunity was what they called recombinant innovation, so the recombining of data assets to create new value. So, if you imagine at the moment data is siloed in, let's say, finance data, energy data, health data, what happens when you recombine those elements of data around the individual to create new value? And that's a recombinant innovation opportunity. We also identified the challenges and core issues behind accessing that, um, that value, uh, which was, uh, I think, quite enlightening for us having been in the market for nine years to see actually what it's going to take to make this market work and for individuals to actually have access to the data and create a safe and easy market that can create value and one of the key elements behind that or one of the core issues is infrastructure so the infrastructure to make that safe and easy infrastructure at a level of um, things like interoperability digital identity um, and making data safe to share. And what we focused on in the sandbox is safe data sharing. How do you make that safe for the data to flow from an organisation to an individual with that GDPR right and then make that available elsewhere? There are two levels to this. One is, like most markets, you have to have some infrastructure to make it work. And then at another level, how do you create the value that goes on top of that? So our programme of sandboxes is indeed at an infrastructural level, which is the sandbox phase one that we've done, Uh, we're moving into phase phase two now, and then a series of value sandboxes that look at exploring that recombinant innovation opportunity. So um, the the businesses are very keen to access the value, but also are very uh, well aware of the risks associated with that data sharing and want to create the environment to make that possible. So the reports
0: show some positive outcomes uh, and and views about where this could progress to. Uh, Can you give us an idea of of what was discovered?
1: We ran the sandbox focusing on safe data sharing. So can you safely uh, fulfil the vision of data mobility? And in this instance, we're looking at the model where the data goes from an exporter, um, let's say the BBC, through to uh, what we call a data facilitator and have been called personal data stores or personal data management services, vaults, lockers, all sorts of things. There are numbers of them in the market, as we know, David. Um, And then from there through to apps and services, so making that data available. So you can take it from the BBC and from Barclays and from Facebook and from British Gas and, and BT. These are the businesses that participated in the sandbox through to a data facilitator. In this instance, we use DigiMe, who are a well-funded entity that have got, a data facilitator that have got uh, enough capacity to cope with this sort of sandbox environment, and out to an app. Um, And we we were looking at it from two levels really, one at a system level, so is it secure and is it privacy enabling? And another one at an end-to-end user experience level, Um, Both were really, really informative about what can and can't be done. Everybody's been very doubtful as to whether this actually could work. And to be honest, we all got a bit bored with having the conversation and all the kind of arm-waving and lots of slides about how this works. We wanted to really prove that it could, and we did. And it can, and it actually can work, and that is great. What we learnt was a lot of what we theorised in the DCMS report, which is, there are still quite a few gaps. Um, And they manifest very much in the user experience. So we watched 22 real users import their data from different organisations in the sandbox to the facilitator and out. And in doing that, it's pretty obvious there are a number of things significantly missing in the market. So digital identity is quite obviously one big one. And everybody's been talking about it for years. So if we can crack on and solve that, will help a lot. If you haven't got a digital identity, you have to use passwords. So watching 22 people log into five different systems with passwords was possibly one of the most toe-curling experiences I've had for quite some time. <laughs> um, and then watching the, the systems into which they log in then say, if you're going to take your data, it's very, very scary and very, very... Uh, you're going to get in deep trouble if you do it then when you export it and provide it to other people they say this is very very scary and very very difficult. People are already quite cautious about what they're doing with their data and you've got this privacy communications cross wiring from an end-to-end user experience you end up with really aggravated individuals who are very concerned about what's going on with their data. People don't know who they're sharing their data with and whether or not they're going to be valid and, and safe So we need to validate third parties that we're sharing data with, and there is no way of doing that at the moment. It's quite interesting to watch people, they were shorthanding to sort of recommendations and phone a friend sort of thing. Um, So that's third party validation, but really underpinning that and at a fundamental level, we don't know where the liability sits if you do share the data. So uh, we're kind of covering that sort of in the market at the moment as we share data outside of the data mobility model by having one-to-one agreements between organisations about the data sharing. In this instance, we've got to work out where the liability sits. One of the other big learnings is how does the data come out of organisations? So in, with open banking, we, we were able to get access to banking data pr- pretty uh, effectively. Similarly for Facebook, because they have APIs to their business, um, although now very carefully managed. Um, But in in other businesses, it it was different, so many businesses still don't have APIs to their data, and of course behind that it's not just an API, it's the data itself, the standard of the data. And then organizing the data inside the organization, where in some businesses the data still resides in say four or 500 systems, so it's very difficult to get it out. If businesses want to participate in this market and bring their data to this market and work within ecosystems to create this new value, they have to think about organizing their data, making it standard, and then getting it out through APIs. And of course, there's a lot going on with that around the smart data review that's happening with Bayes at the moment, around looking at different sectors beyond the banking sector. There's a huge amount going on in the EU EU as well, Looking at how do we make data portability into growth opportunity? How do we standardise in markets? Grow on the back of what we've done with PSD two. So that that's a that's a big push forward. But the really big gig actually is not technically getting it right. The big gig is preparing yourself to create value. And many of the businesses that we worked with, in fact, all of them are preparing themselves to create the value. Many businesses that we see are nowhere near in a place where they can even get close to creating the value. So really it's, it's creating innovation units that can create these new digital services that's going to be critical. I think the great thing about data mobility is you can get to it, but actually it's about the value you're creating that enables the individual to permission you to get to it, which means you don't get all of it automatically, it's not just a great big thud of data, it's permissioned and accessed by the individual who recognises the value that you can, they can get, that you can deliver through that use case, through that service. So it's a really symbiotic win-win, upward draft.
0: Now, at the Data IQ Awards in July, we recognised the contribution made by Keith Dugmore to ensuring commercial access to public sector data. As one commentator said, everybody in the data industry owes Keith a debt of gratitude. I caught up with him on the day of our awards to find out why. I am here in London um, at the home of Keith Dugmore, who is or was the founder of DUG, the Demographic Users Group, as it was called then. Uh, and Keith has just been the recipient of the Data IQ Professor Derek Holder Lifetime Achievement Award. So I've come along to talk to him about his career and what he's up to now, and what he makes of the state of the data industry. So. <laughs> Keith, to begin, there are people out there who don't know you. Um, give us a sense of your early career, perhaps up to the point where you launched the UG.
2: Right, um, I've realised that we're going back to 1972, uh, 47 years, which is pretty a chilling thought. And uh, I started work uh, in local government at the Greater London Council, which um, uh, was quite an exciting place for a young graduate to be. And uh, they had what was grandly called the intelligence unit with about a hundred people working in it. Um, and we were let loose on doing all sorts of analysis. The two things that particularly uh, stand out for me we did some work on um, analysing social polarisation in London, which was seen to be a social issue then, probably still is now, um, and also um, did some work on the uh, GLC's council housing estates. GLC had 300,000 houses at that time and there was concern about whether or not uh, their lettings policy was um, discriminatory in race and using the good old census we were able to go back and show that the worst estates had certain sorts of people in and the nice estates had different sorts of people in. I stayed in local government uh, in various guises for about 12-14 years, and then I had a call from CACI, from Clive Humby, would I like to uh, join them to set up a a new public services group, and so I found myself in the real commercial world, then I moved back into a consultancy and returned to CACI to be in charge of financial services group, Um, and then in 1996, uh, thought that um, was it worth having a go going independent? Um, there may be a small number of companies who think that it's worth paying for a few days uh, independent advice um, and might have make my way doing that. So I set up Demographic Decisions and in retrospect, I'm still pleased with the name because Decisions is what it's, what it's all about. Then I was talking with friends at um, Marks and Spencers, Whitbread and Sainsbury's, who said that um, we have no idea as to how to make contact with government. <laughs> um, and uh, the census was looming, the 2001 census, which was uh, a very important data set in those days and I think still underlays a lot of stuff now. and. Uh, they suggested that um, it was worth trying to uh, consolidate some commercial companies in a group to uh, talk to government about what was going to be in the census, access to it, um, cost, uh, file formats and so on and the great thing was that in talking to ONS about this they welcomed it because they said we only wish we could talk to commercial companies. We, we see some of the resellers, but we very rarely talk to a high street retailer or anybody of that sort. And so the idea landed at the right time. And so there was a bit of momentum. Um, and the decision uh, was taken that we would just be end user companies, which I think in hindsight is quite interesting that that's been Doug's role. Um, and uh, they members tended to say well we, we know we can talk to the suppliers anytime we want to but it's quite nice to have a natural amongst ourselves and um,
0: I think the, that helps with uh, their willingness to be open um, and to share their experience if they know there's not a supplier in the room who's going to jump on it and go we can fix that yeah, yeah I think that's <laughs> right I think that's right yeah. but give us a sense of the data sets that were available and the tools that you had then to tackle them because a lot of people in our audience will be quite new into the data industry yep. and perhaps won't necessarily understand some of the challenges or what the scope was or what was possible where you started off and, and where you got up to at that point in the sort of late, late yep. 90s. Yeah,
2: um, I think that uh, quite a bit of the early interest uh, amongst the Doug members was on the, was on the geographical side. So it was the world of store catchments, market estimates and so on and so some were in the world of using uh, ARC Info, uh, Map Info and of course things were developing fast then because if you'd wound back to um, uh, mapping in the 70s it really was unbelievably primitive with line printers and so on and uh, I'm just thinking that GMAP for example based up at Leeds uh, in the academic world suddenly realised they could put together models with rather faster software um, and made a very good business out of doing gravity modelling for um, uh, some of the big banks and building societies. And so uh, the emphasis in initially was particularly on geography, but even in the early days, uh, some of the members were interested in customer databases, um, at that time Geo demographic coding of customers, profiling of customers, and so on. starting point was the census, Office of National Statistics, um, with all its rich geographical detail, but then inevitably it started uh, opening out into, well, what about ordnance survey data? What about the postcode address file? And so um, that led to uh, pressure on government um, to open up more data sets and it was quite interesting, I think, in many cases, that we received some encouragement from within government to make that case. Mm-hmm. So they, at a, at a technical level or whatever, they would be quite keen at, yes, we'd like more people to use our data, and if we can find a way of um, convincing the politicians that it's uh, the right thing to do, uh, then we'll do it. And so uh, Office of National Statistics... Um, did open up their data sets with click-use licensing. Um, in another part of the forest, um, Ordnance Survey, Morris had their hands tied in having to make a return to government, and so there was a lot of pressure on them and frustration there of all this data exists, why, why can't we use it? Um, and then in the mid-2000s, The Guardian launched its free-hour data campaign. Really, that led to uh, great moves within central government um, for uh, open data and the data.gov website, and and a presumption that stuff should be out there and accessible unless there are good reasons why not. And so that was a uh, yeah, a great great progress, I think. And the, the battle continues because uh, you know even to this day, I think the. Um, Uh, the definitive address file that government uses isn't open to everybody and so there are still battles to be fought. A point that I used to make to ONS, and I think was very much taken on board, was that if they wanted to extract maximum value from the data, it was a matter of extending its use. And that maybe coming up with simple packages of the data for people who uh, hitherto would have found it all a bit overwhelming, or it may be going into microdata and sensitive data with particular safeguards but uh, the more that ons could say our data is being used for the following purposes regarded as a as a good thing we are able to argue the case that if uh, supermarkets can locate efficiently and provide customers with what they want locally this is a thing like the public good, just like the health service is the public good. Ahead of the what
0: would have been the 2011 census, there was really quite a lot of argument about even whether it should take place, yep. whether it's fit for purpose, uh, if it is carried out, the extent to which <coughs> it should allow commercial interest to be reflected in the, the, the questioning and the access yep. subsequently. Uh, it wasn't a given that it would proceed in the same form and with the same access rights was it?
2: No that's true and I think Francis Maud who became Cabinet Office Minister had um, uh, made the case that uh, was it really necessary and wasn't the data available elsewhere Um, but um, it was successfully argued that in order to have near 100% coverage across a, a wide range of topics the census at that time, was still the only way to do it. But it did open up um, investigation of what else exists in government. And, of course, some of uh, the Doug members, all the Doug members, have long had their eyes on um, uh, HMRC and the Treasury and looking at income data. Um, and uh, not down at the individual level, but as a basis for producing um, small area estimates of income. And uh, So ONS uh, launched a um, uh, project to start looking at alternative data sources that um, are already collected by government. Department of Work and Pensions is another obvious uh, source and that has continued in parallel. So uh, for the forthcoming census, 2021, it will be traditional in the sense of its method and coverage, apart from the fact there will be an effort to get it largely online. ONS has um, done a lot of research on alternative data sets and published lots of stuff Um, and so there are undoubtedly uh, progress being made in that area, but um, unlike many other European countries, um, we don't have a, uh, a register of citizens and so if you look at Scandinavian countries, Finland, for example, um, uh, also Holland, they essentially can feed off government administrative data sets and many of their questions are answered, whereas we are in a bit of a parallel world of having a series of government departments, often who don't talk to each other. It's an aspiration that this forthcoming census will be the last of the traditional censuses and that ten years hence, really, by then administrative data should be uh, fed uh, fed off. It also raises the interesting point about data collected by commercial companies and whether that might um, be made available for public use.
0: Finally, at the Data IQ Summit in June, I chaired a panel which looked at what companies need to do in order to embrace AI and automation. It featured Lorenzo Bavasso, director of Big Data Digital at Three, Julian Brewer, head of Digital Marketing Global at Schroeders, Ramon Perez, Managing Director of Data Mining Lab UK, and Scott Logie, Managing Director of Red Group Insight. We started by discussing whether automation should be looked at as a cultural shift rather than one driven by technology. Lorenzo, perhaps starting with you, uh, earlier this month um, there were not one but two AI summits taking place in London at the same time as part of London Tech Week, very much focused on technology, and that's often where automation is thought to be happening. But I got a strong sense from your presentation that really we need to understand this as a culture shift.
3: So yeah, the, the, there is this common mistake to, to to associate AI or machine learning or all what's new about data with a big technology kit that is going to come and resolve the problem. But actually, uh, as, as Ramon was saying as well, that's available. It's there. And, and the culture of companies that produce that technology is more and more to make it available almost for free or, or to democratize. So it's the use of it, it's the culture to use it and to expose and be able to tell the story that that tool can tell with the proper use of data, that is the trick. Uh, and I think that that's where the companies have the challenge. They buy a lot of kits, of course, to make it enterprise-grade, you spend money, but then it's the cultural shift that matters, and I think that that's, that's where the, the, the core of the transformation is. And it looks from your slide as if uh, adopting for example, Agile as a working practice is important to make that happen. Yes, because, because you embed the data into the product logic. It's not anymore something that sits aside, but it's core part of the product. And Agile and the product organization allows you to test and innovate quicker. And to get the value out of uh, out of it quicker, uh, otherwise uh, you you can go uh, you you can go around in circles for a lot of time trying to sort out the technology, and then you don't you're not able to tell the story, you're not able to show anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Julian, you're working. I can't remember how many markets you said. Um, Forty. Forty. Okay, uh, that's a lot of different cultures. Um, are you trying to create a unified culture within that? And to what extent is automation going to be helpful as the, the base from which everyone is working? So um, the vision is quite important
4: to start with, to your point around getting everybody on board with a story, so sparking smarter relationships. Um, was our vision, that's the story that we, we tell, and we, we've almost branded that internally, so all of our slides have that sitting on the bottom. So getting people on board was getting people to understand the vision and to buy into the vision to start with. Um, the fact that um, the, the data had to be standardised, the fact that you need to be able to use machine learning eventually to be able to really surface stuff, is, is almost by the by. That sits underneath. Um, those are the those are the uh, the techniques that sit. The story and the vision I buy into what you're saying is is
5: is the key piece to be able to get people on board with. I watched your presentation very keenly because I gave almost that exact same proposal to a Swiss bank about a year and a half ago, and I think it failed predominantly for two reasons one was exactly like you said they were a bunch it was a wealth management division they were accustomed to the country cl- club type of culture which is that is how i sell my product i spend time on the country club I, i'm playing golf and they felt incredibly threatened by this notion that you could do some of this using machines and i at the time didn't have a good Part of what motivated my conversation was the difference between automation and augmentation. When you explain to people that they can become more valuable as part of the organization through augmentation, the machine is actually just going to bring you good leads. It's still your responsibility to deliver them, and you get all the benefits and commissions and all that. You're not threatening their view of the world. right? So that cultural shift ended up being incredibly important and kind of scuttled. The, the, the project. The other one was, because it was a Swiss bank, data secrecy was such a big concern for them. Yep. You kind of get the impression that they keep all their customer data on papyrus scrolls <laughs> in a cave outside of Zurich somewhere. That, that vision thing, so uh, you gave the example of, you know if, if a director says, I don't understand what's
0: happening in Australia. That's an important important cultural point to say, we can now find it out right here, right now. We don't have to step away from the water cooler. Let's get into that data and let me show it to you in the next minute, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah mean uh, So that, that's basic
4: web analytics you're seeing up there. When we start to take you know, to, into the, our business management dashboard, when we start to show the, uh, the discovered segments and how those individual segments are behaving and what sort of things they're downloading, what, essentially what scores they've got in, they, they're have they getting, that then just empowers questions from, not to us, but down into Australia and down into Taiwan to say, did you know that? And they go, blimey, no. Mm-hmm. And then they start digging into the data. So it becomes a virtuous
0: circle, after one. Yeah. So to what extent is uh, demonstrating that consumer, that customer benefit, part of what is going to make automation take off? And perhaps especially in organisations who are maybe a little bit sceptical about what it could actually do for them.
6: Well, I think, I mean, I think that's obvious that you know, if you can demonstrate there is an end consumer value to what you're doing, then hopefully that, that benefits you know, the business case for actually creating that. Um, and I guess you know, as an agency, we sit one step removed often from that. But it works in the same way when we're automating as an organisation, we, we have to have a benefit in doing that, mm. and we have to demonstrate either that that's an efficiency gain within the organisation or it's a benefit for the end consumer or the end customer that we're, that we're providing. Uh, and I assume that's the case you know, when you look at client yeah. brand-side organisations as well.
0: And just to flip that around, uh, you had some stats about um, when people want to complain, they want to, to talk to a human um, but equally there are age bands who are much happier talking to the machine. Now, How important is it for it to be visible when it's a machine and when it's a human during that customer interaction?
6: Well, One of the things that came out quite strongly in the research is quite often people don't know that, actually. Um, and I think that that's probably a good example of where technology is being used well. Mm. Yeah, if, the, if the end customer, the end consumer, can't tell whether they're talking to an individual or a machine, then something's working very well. When I presented these slides at a travel event a few weeks ago Someone came up to me afterwards and said, we tried a chatbot, it didn't work, no one wanted to use it. Mm. And that suggests to me that maybe that chatbot was t- uh, to blame rather than the end customer was to blame, which is what they were trying to trying to say.
0: Now That's a good indication that technology is working. Yeah. Um, I just wonder, ethically, whether we should be badging that. Lorenzo, does that subject come up, that you know, it should be obvious when it's the machine, when it's the human?
3: Yeah, I think I, I think it's always a, a fine line. And now we are, we have gone through a couple of years of strong attention to regulation. Now that tension is flipping back to the to the matter. So is it ethical? Is it good to not understand what is a human is a machine? But I believe that the consumer I, I don't think the consumer really minds uh, if the digital interaction is a proper interaction. Is is okay with it? The reason probably why in a complaint phase the consumer wants a human is because everyone wants to feel a bit special and this problem to be a special problem, not a standardized one. <laughs> but right, but 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 if the if, if the chatbot is smart enough, at, at the end we are pretty standard unfortunately, in terms of problems sometimes mm-hmm. with our uh, with the organization we interact with. So if the if the If the chatbot on the other side is smart enough, I don't think no one would mind. On the other side, internally in an organization, the advantage of having such an interaction is massive because you can scale, Mm -hmm. you can be better for the customer because you can scale and solve some of the problems faster if you have all the chain uh, working. And this is something that uh, is more difficult. You have to train agents constantly where they are are people, so they, they may not be effective with the customer. So I think I think especially in the interaction between customer and organisations, it's okay if it's done properly and if the technology surfaces properly to the customer.
0: And Ramon, I think you were making the point that uh, you know, the real benefit comes from using the machine to remove the toil, mm-hmm. uh, to use that that Google term to leave in the human hands the things that humans are particularly
5: good at and where they significantly add value. That's right, and if we come back to the chatbot example, remember there's toil for your customers too, Mm. right? Coming through your call center is incredibly painful, (laughs) right? Don't waste their time, don't expose toil to them. It's not just about your business also, it's about their satisfaction with your company. And so by you know moving them through some sort of automated process, you're, you're reducing that toil on them. It can be asynchronous. I'll give you a recent example. I was trying to get a, a satellite installed by Sky TV. They do it all through Facebook Messenger now. And so they, I'd send them a message, they'd come back with a message to try to do the scheduling. But we did it over the course of the day through multiple s- asynchronous conversations. Mm-hmm. That actually, to me, was fantastic. We're hearing about 5G. That's the vision. We
0: know that that's going to be necessary uh, to get us into that next phase. Um,
3: what's the sort of horizon line you're looking at for that? But well, to be honest, uh, I wouldn't say Telco as a data uh, limitation. It's, it's more a cultural one again, because we, we see it as Telcos on a wealth of data actually. So we, we we may know a lot of what customer does or what customer moves or whatever. It's just. There is not a mindset sometimes to build products on top of what is the core business, which is the old engineering, get the best pipe ever. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think that they are all changing now. They, they have to because, as I said before, yeah, 5G is a huge opportunity, but it's still a bigger pipe that will, will have to become cheaper and cheaper to get, to, to, get to, uh, to the customer a better service that maybe someone else will want to provide. So I think they are going through the journey, I think it's not impossible, uh, and it's not impossible especially if uh, telcos get smart into building side, partner correctly. What I see is that there is a strong culture in telcos to speak about service and not product because this is what they're used to do, uh, to don't adopt that product agile methodology because they're what, this is what not they're used to do. But there is an injection of different, the different skills into telco that is happening from media, from product companies from data organizations to complement. And uh, and, and I think it's more than possible. And and, and if that happens, then they will realize that they have a lot that they can play with. And every telco is going through huge transformation, rather already done or rather in the process to do, both in terms of network technology, which is becoming more and more cloud IT and so data intensive, and both in terms of omni-channel experience to enable digital transformation. We are getting there. It's It's just a matter of time. Um, and it's a matter of uh, having that skill gap injected into the company, in maybe. Is standardization of data part of
0: the vision of what you're trying to achieve so you avoid those blockers in the future? When I stepped into the
4: organization, all of the way that the data was gathered across all the different channels was done differently and done in the local language. So, it, yes, we could have then worked on that centrally to be able to convert it. But actually what we did was we went back to first principles and said, okay, let's try and change it right at its source. So whichever channel we plug on now has to adhere to a taxonomy and a data layer. In other words, it, it has to be consistent. It has to be in English. Sorry, anybody who's in Taiwan. So it has to be in English for us, and it has to be standardised this way. That includes not only our channels, but third-party channels that provide us data. So anybody comes along to a third-party event has to adhere to our standards, because otherwise it becomes really difficult.
0: My team on the data side is me and one other person. That's it. Let's pick up on this question about how we as um, leaders of these functions can can bring about this change that we've been looking at this morning. Uh, Is it about uh, being the visionary? Is it about the person who understands the solution? How do you make this happen? Lorenzo, clearly you're getting some traction. What is it that's worked for you?
3: Uh, for me it 's all about the dual strategy I was talking about is you need to show you need to show the value very quickly so uh, if you enter an organization, the first thing you have to do okay yeah you, you assess what 's there and what you have to what you have to to change, but you identify two or three very good cases in which you can pilot not a concept is I agree with Ramon concept is not a good idea it has to be real it has to be something that you can show the value for. But tactically, don't care. Go there, excite the business with some value, even do it a bit aside and then show it. Uh, once you have shown it, you start to get some, some interest and you have to convert that interest into willingness to spend money, create uh, resource teams, uh, uh, upskill the organization. So it's all about connecting, in my opinion, the, the theory and the excitement about, uh, of, of what data can do with something real at the beginning. And then you have to be able to execute. Scott, you're involved with the recently rebranded DMA, um, uh, is
0: demonstrating leadership through that kind of activity part of the narrative?
6: I think it is, yeah. I think that there is a responsibility on the DMA and other other bodies like that to demonstrate the value, which I think, you know, that's part of the reason the Customer Engagement Committee exists, is Mm. that there wasn't any focus really on the end consumer and the value that the end consumer can gain from things like new technologies and the way that that engagement takes place. Mm. So, yeah, I think there is a responsibility on us as an industry to pull all of that together to help different organizations get those case studies. Because not everyone can afford to, you know, to push forward. So seeing that there is benefits in other organizations to allow you to take that first leap of faith, I think, is, is really important.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramon, when you're um, engaging with, with clients, how do you help them with that leadership thing?
5: Right, because I think that a lot of senior leaders talk about automation and they're thinking of cost savings and they terrify their staff. I mean, (laughs) you know, I have rarely seen anyone be able to do that, actually reduce headcount through some sort of automation. Normally what they do is they get augmentation for one because they get more powerful humans and then they also are able to do tasks like the toil components that people don't want to do or were completely not possible prior to that. So I, I try to, when I talk to senior leaders, say, the way you're going to tamp down the fear is by showing people that it actually helps them in their lives, it helps their customers, it helps the business, and they're not going to lose their jobs. They're actually going to become more valuable to the organization. Yeah, And Julian, you, you've sort of arrived as a bit
0: of a visionary, perhaps, um, at Schroders, clearly in terms of what you're attempting to do for the digital marketing. Um, what has been the, the, the success factor for you in making that happen? So I think it, um, sorry, coming back to your point around storytelling,
4: storytelling is massively important. Um, pick your moment when you tell the story, because if you tell it too early and, and, and then you can't deliver off the <laughs> back of it, so all of that standardisation of data and getting your ducks in a row and all the rest of it, then starting to move into storytelling is quite key. So for me, it's storytelling but with timing mm. so that you can actually deliver off the back of what your stories have pricked in terms of, of interest.
0: And that's it for this edition. If you enjoyed it, please link, like and share. And until the next one, goodbye.